the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Horticultural Question Time. Welcome, my name is Jeanette Sutherland and I am delighted today to pose questions crowdsourced from you, the FAS listener, to horticultural expert Dr Audrey Litterick. Many of you have been inspired by FAS webinars and outputs that Audrey has created. Through asking your questions, I learned a lot, including the difference between compost and a growing medium. In the show notes, we have links to materials for those that want to explore more. Hi Audrey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your involvement with growing on a small scale? Okay, well it it started probably when I was about three, I reckon. <laughs> so uh, my I used to enjoy gardening with my mum and dad and my grandparents, all of which, all four of which were, were, were really good growers. Some were growing uh, cut flowers for expression and uh, the others were more vegetable growers the Scottish vegetables of the time, which was mainly just basically uh, potatoes, turnips and cabbage or kale, not much else. We've got a lot more ambitious. I've been gardening since I was very young then and then working on professional or commercial nurseries and market gardens since I was 12. Probably before it was actually legal to work at (laughs) at that age. I was definitely used as child labour, but uh, unpaid, first of all, as well. But I, I wanted to be there. I really, really enjoyed it. And I've worked on nurseries of all scales since then and been working in horticulture then trained in horticulture at uni and art college and then became a plant pathologist I worked as a plant pathologist for a good eight years or so and then after that the support for government support for horticultural pathologists in Scotland was rather slim so I kind of moved sideways into soil science and crop production and that's where I still am really on a very very practical scale so I don't just work in horticulture, but uh, I still do quite a bit of work with small scale growers of all types in all parts, particularly in the crofting areas. Excellent. And we're so gl- glad that you could join us today because we've had organised courses that you've spoken to growers in Sky on the Facebook and that there was lots of people really interested. So we've got some questions that have come from people that are growing on a small scale and throughout the crofting county. So will we just make a start with some starting on the questions? Yes, fire away. This listener, I have high sandy pH soil in an area with a lot of rain. What can I do, if anything, to increase its fertility in the long term? It's always a bit more difficult with the very light soils like that because the nutrients are more easily leached. So the the degree to which nutrients are actually held in a soil depends on something called cation exchange capacity. In other words, that's, that's the amount of negatively charged sites that can hold on to nutrients. And there's two ways that you could increase that soil's ability to hold on to nutrients. One of them is just about impossible, and that's to increase the amount of clay that's in the soil. That's not an easy thing to do. But an, a way which everybody can do is to increase the amount of soil organic matter in your soil. So there's lots of ways you can do that. The best ways would be to add bulky uh, materials such as say stroy cattle manure horse manure you can also use things like hen pen but that's so nutrient rich that it's not actually applied in very large volumes and therefore it's not a great organic matter builder so the best organic matter builders would probably be things like your own garden compost or stroy cattle manure something like that add that regularly over the years 
not talking huge volumes. A lot of people apply too much. So if you're applying them every year, then probably only about maybe 30, 40 tonnes per hectare. That means three to four kilograms per square metre. I've always got to talk in those two scales because some people have, you know, an acre or two mm-hmm. or a half a hectare or a hectare and others are working on very small scale. You can get a tremendous amount of produce out of a small scale. So that's why I'll always talk in tonnes per hectare, but I'll also talk in kilograms per square metre. I'm afraid I don't do imperial anymore. It's too <laughs> complicated to hold all the numbers in my head. So It's really interesting to do the kilograms per square metre, even like on a field scale, you think, oh, I'm putting on such an amount. But then sometimes if you do the conversion down, you're like, oh, that is quite a, a light dressing or anything. Yeah. So quite, I think even even if you are working on a field basis, sometimes actually just changing it into the kilogram per square metre can kind of be a bit illuminating sometimes. You're, you're totally right, Jeanette, totally right. <clears throat> Most farmers don't have enough dung, actually, to put on massive tonnages. Yeah. But it's the, it's the small-scale growers that frequently put on far, far too much, especially if they've got lots. Yeah. And what would be the disadvantages of like maybe over-applying these things? Well, I've seen it in dramatic style in my mother's garden because my sister's a sister's a saddler. She's got multiple horses. She does right. horse training and things. Multiple horses. So we've always got far more dung than we know what to do with. And and my mum uses this as a, as a mulch and she puts it on ridiculously thick. And, and I have told her about it. And she, she wonders why her geraniums do not flower. Um, for example, there's masses of green growth and the potatoes are vast quantities of green growth and hardly any any tubers. So this is what can happen. You can get lots of green, fleshy growth, but not much fruit and not much flower. And if you in things like carrots, for example, if you put on too much nitrogen in the form of anything, whether fertilizer out of a bag or dung, eventually the, you'll get lots of tops, lots of carrot tops oh. and pathetic little little roots. So it's it's a really dangerous thing to do in terms of uh, crop production, putting on loads of nitrogen. Some crops need a lot of nitrogen, like brassicas, for example. And and in fact, many brassicas and small scale systems are underfed with nitrogen. But if you overfeed potatoes and carrots, you'll not only get lots and lots of green fleshy growth, you'll also get soft sweet growth which is really tempting to pests and and diseases particularly things like aphids and, and caterpillars so it's it's really a bad plan to over apply great well you've slightly touched on one of the other questions so i'll just move on to this one which is how should i manage ground that, that i want to grow a wide variety of vegetables on and, and when i look them up in the books they have different ph and fertility requirements well that's a very easy one really it's all summed up in one word and that is just compromise you have to think about all the things that you're growing and then set a compromise and that compromise is the same whether you're a tiny little plot in a garden or whether you have you know 300 hectares of horticultural rotations or whatever so i would say lime to ph 6.5 and that should be your broad target potatoes like it a bit more acid oats like it a bit more acid things like for example say sugar beet although you wouldn't be growing that up here that maybe likes a much more a higher pH but a good compromise for the pH is to go for a a target of 6.5. As far as nutrients are concerned all horticultural crops need quite a fertile soil so I would go for again a target for P and K so that's phosphate and potash of moderate plus on the Scottish scale. 
I personally wouldn't be too bothered if I was right up at high for phosphate and high for potash. Um, you should be okay at moderate plus. And then magnesium, you should be going for moderate. Aim for that across everything that you do and you should be broadly fine. That's excellent. Oh, well, that's very clear. And so it leads on nicely to another question where somebody was wondering how often on a vegetable plot should you be testing the soil to find out where your pH, P and K are? Well, if you're growing for yourself, I would say every five years. I wouldn't do it any less than that because so many small scale growers, actually, they put quite a lot of bulky organic materials and composts on and you can, you can change things quite quickly, particularly pH. You don't want to be doing, you know, making mistakes with that. So I would say every five years. But if you're growing for money and it's a significant part of your income, I would test every two years. Okay. And that's that's what the big growers do. Where their livelihood depends on yield and quality. And you can the, the amount of money involved per unit area for horticultural crops is enormous. And the cost of soil testing, I'm not talking about any fancy testing. You just need to test for routine analysis is what I would call it. So so uh, soil pH and pK and magnesium status, that's enough. Um, you might occasionally want to test for soil trace element uh, or, or even more rarely potentially toxic elements, but it's very unlikely to be required. The other thing that is interesting to test for is soil organic matter content. There's no scale really against which you might interpret the results, but it's always a good thing to have no less than about five or six percent soil organic matter content in your soils and for a horticultural soil it's probably a good thing to have seven eight nine ten percent to give you a bit more buffering against bad weather and droughts particularly but for routine analysis at least every five years and if you're if you're making quite a lot of money out of a small scale horticultural enterprise i would advise you to go up to as much as even one and two great that's really useful and just to sort of go back the way to the question with the person with the high sandy pH soil, in that case, getting the organic matter tested would be quite useful in that one. Yes, I would say it would. So we've got another listener here that's, that asks about carrots. They're wondering if they can grow carrots on non-sandy soil. And if so, what advice would you give about getting a good crop? It's basically not very easy to grow carrots on anything other than a fairly light soil. I mean, my soil's not the lightest of the light. It's a deep, silty clay loam, but there's a lot of silt in it. And my soil is incredibly deep, very well drained. And although it's not the lightest of the light, it's extremely fertile and there's absolutely no stones in it. And that's crucial as well. So soil texture is really important for carrots. And I don't just mean the percentages of sand, silt and clay with sandy soils and silty soils being the best, but also lack of stones. If you've got a stony soil, your carrots are likely to be very misshapen because the, the root points down and then the minute it hits anything, whether it be a lump of dung or a lump of compost or a stone, it will fang or fork. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking for, for beautiful carrots, then it's not that easy in soil that's got any lumps in it of any description. Carrots do not like heavy soils, you know, with a lot of clay in them. They do not like compaction of any sort and they don't really like wet soils either. So I would say be reasonable. Some people just cannot grow carrots very easily from a soil texture point of view. But if you want to try it, I would dig in lots of finely divided 
So well-matured garden compost, for example, not overdoing it. I mean, and I would never apply it the year that you're going to grow the carrots. I would apply it within a rotation. And rotations are very, very important for all horticultural crops. You should be looking at a bare minimum of a four-year rotation. So growing carrots no more than one year in four. Commercial growers would always do that. It's one of the best ways of preventing pest and disease attack. In, in all horty crops. So most carrot growers would be going in one year in five or six, in fact. So that's that's kind of an aside, but that, that's one part of the thing about growing a, a carrot crop successfully is don't grow them any more than one year in four and do use organic materials, but ideally keep those organic materials at least a year away from carrots because they don't like oh, lots yeah. of nitrogen and they don't like lumpy bits of stuff in the soil. So no manure and certainly no nitrogen fertilizer immediately before the carrots. I'm saying that for small-scale growers. It's slightly different for, for bigger growers. You could choose short varieties. They're quite well-known. They're quite popular. You don't have to go for a massive, long variety. You can go for a short variety, which are easier to grow in heavier soils. They've got less distance to travel yes. down. Yes, that's absolutely right. You can also grow your carrots in beds. So carrots in a no-dig situation do not work if your soil is suffering from compaction. Or if it's a heavy soil, you have to form a bit of a tilth and uh, growing them in beds which have been cultivated to the full depth that you want the carrots to grow in. That does help to some extent as well. And you, you're trying to eliminate compaction, basically. The other thing that you've got to do is you must prevent carrot fly in all but the windiest of sites. I do know one or two people who grow in sort of hurricane zones in the west coast of Scotland <laughs> that don't seem to get carrot fly or quite high up in Scotland, don't seem to get carrot fly, but most people do. And so also to get a good crop, you would have to surround them in a, about a metre high barrier of enviro mesh or fine mesh, or cover them entirely. And the other thing, of course, if you're in a colder area, you also need to cover them in straw over the winter so that you store them. I, I don't store my carrots. I don't lift them. Um, and you don't need to lift carrots in Scotland. So I think of the area of carrots we're growing, I think three quarters of them will be strawed down probably quite soon, just before the forecast of the first frost. Oh, In other words, you dump straw on top of them. Or you could use your own pea straw, for example, um, from your peas and beans mm -hmm. and just chop that and stick it over the top of the carrots and that prevents them getting frosted in winter. So that's summary of the most important points for carrots. Excellent. So there's quite a lot of things for people to think about there, both selecting the site and also watching out for the pests and also maybe selecting varieties that can all make the job a wee bit easier. Yes, the shorter varieties, yeah. Now you mentioned a no-dig methods. Somebody was wondering what exactly is the no-dig method? Well, it's basically just what it says. It's not about being lazy, although it does involve less hard work, obviously. But what it's really about is it's the no-dig philosophy is recognising that soils in natural ecosystems, so in, in forests, for example, and well-managed pastures, have a much, much better natural structure than the soils in horticultural rotations do. In other words, there's earthworms moving up and down, there's fungi moving up and down, and there's natural channels for air and water to get in down to the plant roots. And what you see, you tend to see less flooding in natural soils than you do in cultivated soils. And the reason for that is these pores are open, the, the, the channels for water and air are moving, the soil's healthier and they tend to have 
much higher levels of microorganisms, I mean beneficial microorganisms, in a soil that's not dug. So when you dig a soil, you quite often smash up those fungal networks, you break the, the links between the, the pores, you sort of shut off the channels where water and air moves down, and poorly structured soils don't function as well as a medium for growing plants. So it's an aim to, a no-dig is all about trying to let the, the microorganisms and the, the bugs and worms in the soil do much more of the job of keeping your soil healthy and open and ready for growing crops. Now, it doesn't work that well for everything. You do get people talking about permaculture being ideal for potatoes and carrots. Personally, I don't really feel that it works that well and your yields can be quite low. Some people are very, very good at it and some soils work better than others. In high rainfall areas with heavy soils, you need a very, very good soil structure for that to work well. Um, so it doesn't work for everybody, but you can. I think it's still a very, very good aim to aim towards cultivating as little as you possibly can. And if you're replacing digging over your bed each year and stuff, is it a case of using more mulches or, you know, how do you cope with the things like the weeds and planting in this, using this philosophy? Well, the, the, the painful truth is that many of the regenerative farmers out there doing this on a big scale use an awful lot more Roundup. And many of them would claim that they can't do it without Roundup. Well, that's not true. That's most certainly not true. You can do it without Roundup. Organic farmers manage it, and they do it without Roundup. You may need to use flame weeders. You may need to be an awful lot cleverer with cover crops. You're almost certain to need to use animals in there if you're on a bigger scale, you know, to graze off cover crops, for example. And of course, that's difficult for some people in the east coast of the country because I'm talking larger scale here. Yeah. Because there aren't no there aren't any animals. There's no fences. That you know that we've had such a change since the Second World War where, where so many of the animals are in the West Coast and so many of the, 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 the really big intensive arable farms are on the East, what we need to be doing is moving back to a situation where we're, we're having much more mixed farming and uh, making the best of animals, which of course is what people are trying to tell us we don't need. We don't need meat consumption at the moment. Absolutely, that's not true. We just need the right kind of animal farming. But if you're doing it on a small scale, I would say it's perfectly able, perfectly possible to manage no-dig systems without Roundup and without animals. You, yes, you would be using more mulches, but you'd need to be careful because it's quite easy if you're using lots of mulches to be applying and bringing the mulches from outside, you're applying far too much nitrogen oh, okay, and potentially yeah. also far too much phosphate. So you need to be careful. It's a very dangerous thing to do, to be applying too much nitrogen and too much phosphate. Um, if you apply too much phosphate, you will end up getting deficiencies of micronutrients and potentially quite serious. So deficiencies in zinc and iron, for example. And the last thing you want to do is to be growing very healthy, in inverted commas, horticultural produce for your neighbours and friends and find out that actually they're seriously deficient in some of the minor nutrients that you're trying to, to have in your produce. Mine's like that, unfortunately, whether I like it or not, because I garden on a site of a former piggery and pigs are fed a huge amount of feed a fairly intensive old-fashioned pig farm on a small scale and my soils are excessively high in phosphate so given that we eat we're pretty much self-sufficient in fruit and vegetables my husband and I are on zinc tablets because all of our produce is deficient in zinc and iron so we have to take zinc and iron so it's, it's an interesting thing to think about 
you do not want to create soils which are excessively high in phosphate. And that's that's just one thing to watch. So yes, by all means, use mulch to help control weeds, but think about other methods as well. And you must never apply mulches to the extent that you're actually causing problems in your soils. No, soils are just fascinating because it's the fact that it's not that the soils are maybe if it hadn't been for the extra application, they wouldn't be deficient in things like zinc. It's, you know, the interaction of the chemicals is just a, it's a fascinating topic. It, it is fascinating and it's it's quite complicated. And gardening is one of these, gardening and horticulture is one of these things where a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And, and if you just simply know that uh, mulches are good or think that mulches are good without thinking of, of any of the potential consequences, you can get you can get in a bit of a muddle. Now we're moving to a question that came from Out With Sky because it's uh, from somebody who grows potatoes on the macher. Is there anything that they can do to stop scabby skins? Very, very little. Scab is more problematic in high pH, high calcium soils, as you've realised. Um, so potatoes grown on soils based on shell sand, which macher effectively is, contain a lot of carbonate, a lot of calcium, and they're extremely prone to scab. There's one thing you can do. I mean, some varieties are more prone to scab than others, but on a macker, pretty much everything is going to get scab, unfortunately. Right. But one thing that you can do, I wouldn't think even about fungicides, because, of course, scab is not doesn't affect the flavour of the potatoes at all. Your customers just have to be a bit tolerant of it, and it's worth explaining what it actually is. Just a fungus, that's all, um, which only really affects the skin. But one thing which you can do to reduce the incidence of scab is by watering the potatoes quite thoroughly at the tuber initiation stage. So that is the stage of the potato growth where they're just, they're like tiny wee marbles at the ends of the roots and they're beginning to develop, uh, well, they're smaller than marbles between that stage and the sort of marble stage. That's the tuber initiation stage. And if you ensure that your potatoes are well watered during that two or three week period, then you can significantly reduce the incidence of scab in the finished crop. So you'll often see, maybe not in the Western Isles or on the Western seaboard, but certainly in the in the in the areas of Scotland where potatoes are grown, you'll often see great big irrigation machinery wheeled out at that time. That is why, that is exactly why these guys are irrigating those potatoes at that time, to make sure that the, the potatoes are um, have plenty of moisture at the tuber initiation stage because that is what cuts scab and of course it doesn't really matter to the taste but it does matter if you're a supermarket buyer because you're only going to tolerate a certain percentage of scab on the skins of the potatoes so commercial growers would always use that technique the other thing is absolutely only grow potatoes in the soil a maximum of one year in four and ideally go up to one year in six where possible now you might not be wanting to have a six course rotation but if you've got enough space, then just put the land down to break crops and green manures for, for a couple of years and then come back to it. Your scab will just get worse and worse if you grow potatoes any closer in the rotation than one year in four. Great. So that's two very useful tips about rotation on the matter and also watering on the matter. Now, obviously, that might not be very easy to get water to it. So links in maybe to another question that we got through about What's the best setup for collecting rainwater for the vegetable patch? It's quite simple, really. The bigger the surface area you can collect off, the better. You won't get much water if all you have is an open water butt because you're only collecting rainwater from above that water butt. So the ideal setup would be to collect 
rainwater off one or more roofs. So polytunnels, for example, be collecting off that. And you can collect off that and put it into an underground butt, which is quite a useful way of doing it. But then, obviously, you need a pump to get the water back out again. Yeah. I have come across a fancy setup which collected water from a couple of polytunnel roofs. That went into sealed butts, which is a good way of keeping gnats out of it. And then it was a solar-powered pump. So there were solar panels on a nearby propagation or potting shed, and the solar pump was used to fill a header tank, which was basically up on legs, on a a brick-built thing, up on legs. And if it's up on legs like that, then fingers crossed you've got sufficient weight in it to feed a trickle irrigation system with minimal electricity use. That's far too fancy for me to design something like that, but I've seen it. And uh, it it can work really, really well. But really, to collect it to best effect, you need to be collecting it off quite a big surface. And you'll find out yourself, sometimes in the west of Scotland, and I think it's getting worse, actually, you really will have a month or even two months where you're desperately short of water. Mm -hmm. And the more water you can collect, the better. I'm sure that's got, got more serious than it used to be, where you've got long, long spells of brilliant weather, and then long, long spells of absolutely atrocious weather. And the, the more tank you can have to collect water during the bad spells, the better. The other thing which is worth mentioning is that you really must sterilise your water tanks, your holding tanks, at least once a year. Because root pathogens, particularly epithium, can build up inside those. Oh, interesting. And you can just spray them out onto or irrigate them out onto the roots of developing seeds and seedlings. And that's not a good thing. You know how you're talking about the climate changing and perhaps the drier spells staying for longer. How on a vegetable patch, how would you decide when you should water? What are the sort of the red flags to think that we actually need to be watering our potatoes and things like that? It really well, well, potatoes particularly, I would always be watering quite quite well until the soil is not quite at field capacity, but quite moist for scab prevention. The rest, it's a very difficult thing, a very, very difficult thing to do, to describe. The soil surface should ideally be dry, whether you're in a polytunnel or outside, because one of the greatest things you can do to help prevent disease in a polytunnel is keep the humidity down in the canopy of the plants that you're growing. And humidity is a much greater enemy to you as a grower in a polytunnel than temperature is, and that's so misunderstood. And a lot of that's to do with watering. I would say the majority of people who've got access to plenty of water actually overwater. Okay. And it, it can create quite a big problem. One of the ways you can do it scientifically, and I don't do it scientifically, I do it by feel. One of the ways I can do it scientifically is to, is to have a soil moisture meter. If you buy one of them and learn how to use it properly, it can be quite a shock. You can then turn around to yourself and say, I've been applying far too much water. But the best way I would say to, to do it is to tubing lay flat tubing underneath the soil surface and turn that on for a little bit every day or every couple of days and make sure that the soil is fairly moist right deep down but the top two or three inches should actually be be pretty dry and that helps keep your the crops in your polytunnel free of foliar disease outside it's less of an issue i'm afraid i can't say it's all to do with feel the one thing which is worth mentioning at this stage is completely different matter if you're watering growing medium as opposed to soil it's quite difficult to badly overdo it if your crops are growing in a soil either outdoors or in a polytunnel but as soon as you start to confine soil in a small raised bed 
or you're, you're growing in pots, it becomes much, much more difficult. And in fact, I've been working on commercial nurseries, which were producing nursery stock for some years before I was allowed to do the watering. And that was because the guy who, who ran the nursery, he's a real plantsman. And he said it's actually one of the most skilled jobs on the nursery because so many people stand above their plants and they fire the water down into their pots, creating compaction, reducing the amount of air which can actually get in. And of course, as the growing medium collapses over time, those pores get smaller and the plants have even more of a tendency to hold far too much water. And now this problem is going to, well, has already got a lot, lot worse. And that's because we are using peat-free and reduced peat growing media now, rather than the old peat-based ones, which are a lot, lot more forgiving. So the number of deaths that's happening in containers due to overwatering in the modern peat-free composts, it's going through the roof. So we all need to think a lot harder about how, including myself, think a lot harder about how much water we're putting on to plants in pots and realising that many of us are actually putting too much on. In fact, I went away on holiday, leaving my greenhouse in charge with my neighbours in charge of my greenhouse, and several things died from overwatering over the week that I was away. And and some of them just looked rotten for the rest of the season. <laughs> so so overwatering is a big problem, and it's it, watering is a really skilled job. Great. So, you know, like we see a big push to move away from peat-based compost, so the watering is a really important component of you need to change your behavior if you're changing your growing medium. You need to change your behavior entirely. And watering is the biggest thing and possibly changing the type of container with the type of drainage holes that you've got in it as well. And possibly considering putting your pots on a different surface, possibly one like a sand surface that will pull the excess water down out of the bottom of the pot. Professional growers find this too. Which is why very few big scale professional growers have moved from peat yet, because there's been no legal ban of peat in professional horticulture. And because they find it so difficult, they're just not doing it. I'm not saying nobody's doing it, but the majority of commercial growers are still using peat. Amateur gardeners and small scale people are going to be forced to use peat free media very shortly. There's going to be an enormous shortage. And unfortunately, the quality of a lot of the products out there is absolutely appalling. So, yeah, we're in for a bit of a storm. And so I know in the past you've helped advise people on how to make their own compost. Do you think with the things changing that that's going to be more growers start doing their own compost? Well, here we have a the subject of a guidance note, which I wrote about three or four weeks ago, which is thankfully the guidance note is now beginning to save me a lot of time. There's a tremendous amount of confusion out there about what compost is. And the reason for that is that we have two completely separate meanings for the word compost in Britain. Only in Britain. Other countries don't have that. So for me, compost is the stuff that you make in a compost bin in a garden or maybe a commercial company would take large quantities of garden wastes, for example. They would form that into a heap. And then there would be a bit of mixing, a bit of self-generated heating and aeration. Then they might put the stuff through a screen in the end to form a beautiful compost. And your garden compost, if you're good at it, could be very good as well. But that's compost. That's what I call a true compost. The trouble is we have used the same word, compost, to describe a growing medium that you get out of a bag in a garden centre. 
and that is totally and completely different material. So I will not call that compost because it confuses people. That's a growing medium. And formerly that was entirely based on peat or with a little bit of garden soil or loam in it. That was the John Innes compost. And you might get wee bits of other stuff like sand, grit, gravel, perlite, vermiculite, base fertilizer, lime to form a growing medium or a growing substrate or a potting medium. But unfortunately in our country, we call that compost as well. And the gardening media call it compost, which means that gardeners look at their own garden compost think it's the same as the stuff that they get out of a bag in the garden centre because it looks the same and then they have a disaster because their seeds won't germinate, their young plants won't grow. So garden compost is a nutrient-rich soil conditioner, far too rich and salty to be growing seeds in. It's completely different. So you can use your garden compost as a growing medium in pots, but you must dilute it probably as little as 20, even 10% of that. And then oh, you'll wow, have to dilute yeah. it with something else. And the problem is you as a gardener cannot get easy access to the something else. You can use coir, but coir is not great on its own. And it's got environmental sustainability problems too, because it's coming from India or Sri Lanka or somewhere like that. You could use wood fibre, but there's not enough of it. And it's not available to amateur gardeners. You could use perlite, but that's got quite big sustainability issues too. Vermiculite, same. Sand, too fine. Soil, full of diseases. See where I'm coming from? It's a really difficult thing to do. So I'm trying to get commercial companies to consider making wood fibre in the right sort of formulation that gardeners could buy it to make their own growing media. There's not even enough for the commercial markets this year. So growing media is going to be in really big short supply. So if anybody's out there is considering needing to buy growing media next year i would get on with it now right there won't be anything like enough to go around goodness that is really really interesting i've done a webinar on that which is available through the fast website and it describes that whole subject in more detail and i've also just written a guidance document explaining all about it for crofters and small-scale growers and that's available on the fast website too Oh, that's fantastic. Because, yeah, like amazing how sort of geopolitical decisions about peat can have an effect in your own garden years down the line. Just as a wee bit of an aside, when we were talking about various things, obviously a lot of our clients have been unhappy with the wool price. Is there much of a a role for using wool in either composting or as a growing medium, which we now know what the clear difference between the two is? (laughs) Yes, there is. And in fact, I've got a client who's very interested in taking this forward commercially in some way. And so am I. And I can see there's definitely possibilities in it. Wool is a good ingredient in a composting process. It's extremely high in protein and nitrogen, but you've got to combine it with the right thing. It's Because it's high in nitrogen, it's got to be balanced with something that is structurally very stable and full of carbon. So you could mix it with, say, dry brown winter harvested bracken or wood chip it would require careful management but would make a good compost Um, and somebody's already doing it there's no reason why other people can't do the same on saying that if you're going to make it and sell it and bag it you'd have to be really really quite a big company and the only serious way that's going to work is if you're not too far from major distribution networks like motorways and and so on because growing media is very heavy and the margins are very very small that's not to say it won't work the other thing you could potentially do is look at in some way changing the wool to make it into 
a fertilizer. And again, I've got somebody looking at, at the potential for doing that at the moment. It wouldn't work, I don't think, in broad scale agriculture. I think the price of doing that would be just too high. Mm-hmm. But it might work to produce a fertilizer for you know, the gardening market, for example. So, yeah, it's a good question. Great. Oh, well, it's good to see because um, that there's um, people thinking about new innovative uses all the time because yeah. that's that's fantastic. And we had a podcast with um, Catherine who's growing cut flowers in sky and polytunnels and she was experimenting using the, the wool-based compost that you mentioned. So and wool-based growing medium, I'll learn eventually, Audrey. So. <laughs> well, you're not wrong to call it a compost. It's just that I'm trying to get away from it because it encourages to pe- people to think that compost is one thing, whereas compost is two things, and yeah. the two different things can be so very different. Yeah, exactly. As you explained, they lead to mass disappointment if you use the wrong one. <laughs> we definitely want yes, to move and, away from that. And that confusion extends to, to government as well and the kind of people that are involved in, at policy level, and that makes me really disappointed because they just don't get it. So they're they're repeatedly talking about about the importance of using green waste compost, which is again an incorrect term. Green compost, which is a product, not a waste, as a replacement for peat, which is it's a different animal altogether. And it, it can be used to replace perhaps maybe ten or even up to twenty percent of the peat in a growing medium, but it's not a direct replacement. It's been fascinating. Now <laughs> we're moving on to crops, as we talked about before, the crops might be integrated with animals. But there was somebody asking about they've got bees. And is there any plants that would be particularly good to grow in the vegetable garden for bees? Basically, absolutely anything with flowers in it. And I wouldn't restrict myself to the kind of flowers that you would naturally have in a vegetable patch. So the things that I can think of that flower really nicely would be all the the peas and bean family, for example, and courgettes. Um, the things that produce fruits of any description, so fruits from squashes, marrows, courgettes, and also all the peas and beans, those are the obvious ones, and potatoes at the at the right time of year as well. But I never restrict myself to that. So I've got, I think also what you grow between your crops is important. So I grow things like basilia, which is a quite famous for attracting beneficial insects like hoverflies and ladybirds and lacewings and things. I also grow marigolds to attract aphids away from the other crops but the bees quite like those so you can have flowers within your vegetable patches and also surrounding so we've got a a hedge surrounding it and a wildflower meadow right beside it and an orchard and and also an ornamental garden and we find that it doesn't really matter whether the plants are native or not the majority of the flowering plants in our wildflower meadow are native plants in fact i think all of them are Maybe not necessarily native to this part of Scotland, but certainly native to, to Britain. But in the in the ornamental garden, there's loads of stuff that's not native to Scotland and the bees absolutely love it. Those non-native plants enable the bees to be there all year round. So at the moment, the things that are flowering are the asters and the sedum um, autumn joy and things like that. They've got loads of the bees are still on them. They're wow. very sluggish, but they're still there. So I would think the most important thing is to have a flowering species within your vegetable garden that are the fruits and vegetables that you're growing. Also extra flowers within and in the, 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 the kind of areas that you're not actually growing anything. So an area that might be fallow. Or I, I don't really like the word fallow because it suggests it's not doing anything at all. But I might have an area that's, that's down to green manures for a year and make sure there's flowering species in that. 
and also try and have as many flowers all year round as you possibly can because that will keep the bees happy all year round and that frequently means going away from native species or having non-native species in there as well. That's fantastic and it's great to see the integration we're talking about like the plants feeding us and feeding the bees at the same time. Yeah that's very easy to achieve. I mean there's one golden word, there's lots of golden words in gardening but as far as this is concerned, diversity. Nature abhors a monoculture, cannot stand a monoculture and very unnatural thing and you will never see it or you'll very rarely see it in nature. Sometimes we see large tracts of a single species and frequently it's because that species has invaded. So large tracts of Japanese knotweed, for example, mm-hmm. or large tracts of Himalayan balsam, and that's unnatural situation. But the more diversity you can encourage in your plot of whatever size, from tiny to large, including both edible species and also non-edible species, the better. Now, in your last answer, you did mention orchards, and we had a question about if it's possible to grow apple trees, if there's any hints or tips for growing them, if your croft is in quite an exposed area. Mm. I would certainly go for the smaller rootstocks, so the, the not the very dwarfing rootstocks, because they just will never yield as much, but they, and it differs whether you're talking about apples, pears, cherries, that the, the type of rootstock differs. But go for the sort of fairly small rootstock so that your plants are not going to grow as tall. So I think my apple trees probably are now about seven or eight feet tall and about 10 years old and yielding extremely well. I, I do live in an extremely exposed site. So point number one, well, in fact, my birch tree is now about 45 degree angle because it was planted before the shelter belt went up. I've got three birch trees and they're all about 45 degree angle. So that's what would happen if I didn't have a shelter belt, but they were put up first. Then the shelter belt went up and the shelter belt's now a good 10 to 12 feet tall, mixed hedge, native hedge of things like field maple, rowan. There's some ash at the moment. I don't think that's going to last much longer. Slow, elder, blackthorn, hawthorn, a mixed native species hedge, which is now trimmed once a year, roughly, or yeah, about once a year. It's pretty dense, but there's some air spaces in winter, which is probably the best way that you can have it. So a really, really good windbreak. And if you're in a really exposed area, then you'll be more limited in the kind of species that you can have. But in the West Coast, things like uh, sea buckthorn and uh, what else? Fuchsia, actually. Fuchsia magellanica. That can be quite good as well. And sycamores and willows, different types of of, uh, scrubby willows. Those can all be good. If you can't manage that, then then the dreaded paraweb is 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 a very good one but it's not very attractive but it can also be very good and the other thing to go for is keep your trees below it below the height of that windbreak ideally if you can well enough back from that windbreak that the sun can still get in because apple trees need need not only a bit of air they also need quite a bit of light and and sun keep back from the shade that the windbreak might call that that depends on your prevailing wind and the way that the sun moves around the sky in your particular area of course it doesn't bother me in my case because the orchard is on a gently south-facing slope. The windbreak needs to be at the west of that and uh, the prevailing wind comes from the, the west to southwest. So so the sun moves across the sky and gets into my plot, but every every area is, is different. But if your wind's really strong, you can actually grow step-over apples, which are very small and they're grown, they're, they're trained as either espaliers or fans or along really quite low 
step over literally wow. uh, trees and those can yield really really well the other thing is make sure that you grow varieties which can actually tolerate the conditions that you've got I mean, I've got a conference pear in my garden, which and the pears are like bullets. And I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get decent pears off that because I'm quite high up. But the other pear variety, Beth, is unbelievable. Can't buy anything like that from France even. And they're just tremendous. So finding varieties that suit your own garden is absolutely key. And of course, by the time your tree starts to yield and you realise you've got it wrong, that's too late. So you need to ask around what grows in your area with other local people and read a good book on the subject. And Kenneth Cox and Caroline, somebody, their book on, I think it's Scottish Plants for Scottish Gardens or something like that. That's a fantastic book in that respect. And also the Scottish Crofters Handbook, Horticulture yes, no, Handbook for Crofters. That's got some good variety suggestions in it. Great. We'll put those links in with um, the notes along with the podcast so people can follow them up. The other thing to mention is make sure you get your soil pH and fertility right before you start. Really, apples are not going to thrive in soils much less than about pH 6. So you need to get your soil right before you start it. Reasonably fertile. Trees don't need a lot of fertility. And you can top that up later on by putting a mulch of dung around the the base of the, the tree. But I still would, ideally, you would be looking for moderate for P and K and magnesium and a pH of at least, well, somewhere between six and, and seven, ideally. Drainage, they do not thrive in bogs. Right. <laughs> so you would need to have reasonable drainage and build the soil up away from any wet patches if you, if you have a wet patch. Make sure there's somewhere for the water to go all very good advice on where to think about planting any apple trees in advance and getting advice from other local growers as well that's yeah it's really important yeah due, due to the lo- longer leading than some of the annual crops <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah mistake with a potato variety and you never need to grow it again i've made plenty of those but um apples it's a bit more serious yeah we've mentioned slugs already but we had a specific question about how can i fight slugs I find that barriers and traps only work to a certain extent. An awful lot depends on where you live, what the type of plants are that you grow, what your soil type is, and how much the slug population has built up over many, many years. I've never lived in a garden where I've had really, really serious problems, and therefore the techniques that I'm about to describe to you work in their entirety. I don't need to bother with barriers. I don't need to bother with traps. I always try to clear dead foliage from really susceptible plants quite early on. So I'm talking really ornamentals mainly and also old vegetable stuff that's on the soil surface. I tend to clear that, otherwise the slugs can build up in a mild autumn. But what I do is, and I've got a big garden and I can still make this work, I go out regularly on a mild night you know the kind of nights that I mean where you you go out on a on a mild damp night maybe it's been raining all day and it's quite warm and you go out and I go out with a bucket and a pair of scissors and I just take a target of a hundred slugs and I go and cut a hundred slugs in half if they're really big I put them in the bucket otherwise I just leave them to be part of the ecosystem and, and break down again and I find that I particularly have to do that on special things I don't have a problem with hostas, but I have a really big problem with tuberous irises and young iris sibiricas. I wouldn't have any irises if it wasn't for my slug control. 
because they really, really like them in my garden. So maybe once a week um, or whenever it's like that, I go out with the scissors and sometimes you can get hundreds in half an hour and it makes a massive difference. I don't need to use slug pellets. So it depends though. Some people are a lot, lot worse. The worst ones are the wee brown ones that go for your lettuces. The other thing I always head for is if I'm growing on young plants in the cold frame, and, and again, this can be a half hour job, lift up every single pot or tree and just cut the slug in half and leave it. And you can, again, maybe 30, 40. But these slugs are the ones that do really bad economic wow. damage. And if you can prevent them laying eggs and you get millions more slugs, then it can make a very, very big difference. So, But I don't think slugs have ever built up in my gardens until they are major, major problems. I know other people who have worse problems. But try that because... If you have a really serious problem, I would go for that method, plus things like copper bands around pots with particularly desirable species, grit round plants that can help to some extent. It can also help you understand whether you've got an issue, because uh, sometimes during the day in my greenhouse, there's no slugs visible, but I can see the little trails. And then if I water everything, leave the greenhouse door shut, come back later when it's really humid, they'll all be out grazing. And cut them all in half and that's that so that's that's my tips i don't use pellets but pellets if you do need them should really be a last resort and it's uh, i can't remember the name of the stuff that now now is the only organically approved slug treatment i would use that but if i was going to use it i would be very careful where i did i mean i do rarely use them the occasion i had to use them this year was on germinating pea seedlings germinating pea seedlings were getting badly attacked by slugs. What I did was put the pellets inside a little cage of very, very fine wire mesh so the birds couldn't get them, but the slugs could. We want to be good stewards of any of these chemicals that we are using in garden or vegetable uh, situations. Now, I'm going to end on maybe a bit of a sad note. We had got Disappointed of Sky has a bit of a saga with a vegetable plot, so we're hoping that you'll be able to help. This bit of plot was used for vegetables in the past and it always worked well. And then it was kept fallow under grass for the last five, six years. Then last year, the vegetables were not great, but the potatoes grew fine on it. This year, some topsoil was introduced, which... In hindsight, we think was maybe a wee bit more peaty than ideal. And again, the potatoes were okay, but none of the vegetables really grew. They germinated, but didn't really come to anything. And they had like micro carrots and stuff. The question is, what should they think about doing next year in 2022? Only once have I had a similar story. And it was from a crofter on Lewis, who had wonderful green fingers, but didn't really understand the principles of what he was doing. And he did exactly the same as his father and grandfather had done every year for generations. And what he did was he'd, his grandfather had started the croft, which was acid, poorly drained peat. He had drained the peat and lugged up wheelbarrows of shell sand and seaweed for year after year after year. That was doing the right thing because he was addressing a serious acidity issue, a serious fertility issue, and a serious drainage issue. But his grandfather kept doing the same thing year on year. Then his father did the same thing year on year. And things started to go wrong about halfway through this elderly man's life. He was So he was the grandson who was now in his 80s. Uh, well, the first thing I'm going to say to, to Disappointed of Sky is 
you need to test your soil. That's the absolute first thing that you need to do because it does sound as if there's something potentially quite badly wrong. So we need to work out what that is. In the case of the man on Lewis, he had used a liming agent in the form of shell sand so many times that his soil pH was 8.6. Wow. Now, when your pH is that high, the nutrients become unavailable. So phosphorus, which is a major plant nutrient, was not available to the crops. And most of the trace elements were rendered unavailable as well. So nothing would really grow properly. doesn't matter how many nutrients he put on. And his soil was excessively high in nutrients because he put on so much seaweed. But the crops cannot get access to it when the pH is as high as that. And that's quite a serious situation because you cannot easily reduce pH. You can add lime to increase soil pH. You can't easily do it the other way around. But this might be a completely different situation. You can't get to grips with it, though, unless you actually start to try and investigate. So point number one, sample the soil. You can get the directions of how to take an accurate representative soil sample on the SEC website or the Farm Advisory Service website. There's directions on how to take a soil sample. So you would want multiple soil samples down to about 15 centimetres taken by walking across your whole area in a W pattern, then mix that together in a bucket and send some off for routine analysis. So that's step number one. So there could be a major problem with pH. There could be a problem with fertility. The other things to consider would be, is there a drainage issue? Does the water sit too long in any part of the plot? Maybe not, but it's worth something worth considering. Have the crops got enough water? That's another thing that can be lacking. So, and these things sound quite basic, but that's a possibility as well. It cannot be pests, or it's very unlikely to be pests and diseases if all crops are affected like that. I mean, when you have land down to fallow over four, five, six years, you can end up with a really serious wireworm problem. Things like cutworms and wireworms. But it's probably not that, because that would have affected the potatoes as well, and those little worms would have been obvious in the potatoes. So I think it's unlikely to be that. The other thing is to ask yourself some more questions. Where crop yields and crop quality good before the fallow period or not? Was it a gradual decline or is it a very sudden thing? But the main things it's likely to be a water issue, too much drainage to or not enough, or a pH issue or a soil fertility issue. And the other basic things would be exposure to severe winds or frosts. But again, you're probably likely to know about that. So the first thing to start with is test your soil. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. A lot of the conversation today is start back at the soil. So that's a good message. Now, we've probably mentioned one already when we're talking about the growing medium. But just to finish off, what would be your top three tips for people starting to think about growing in 2022? Well, I would always suggest to people it's a good idea to be growing your own transplants make your own vegetable transplants and do it yourself rather than buying them in, particularly if you live in a fairly remote area. And if that's the case, one of the most important things, first of all, is to choose the right varieties. So that's tip number one. And it's a really pleasant job, I think, to uh, sit down with a seed catalogue. There's lots of good seed catalogues. I don't use one. I think I use three or four because I like looking at pictures and I like looking at the descriptions. And when the weather's rotten, you can just dream about what you fancy eating. For most of the crops I grow, I grow the same things every year, varieties that I now know I like. But I always try something new. I tried some new chilies this year, just a mixed thing. And they were very good. I think I'll be doing that again. 
Um, but tomatoes, quite often you do end up finding varieties that grow best in your particular climate and your particular structure, whether it be polytunnel or whatever. So I think point number one is choose varieties that you either know are going to grow well or you fancy having an experiment with and order the seed well in advance. Point number two is about growing medium. It's a very difficult thing to do to choose a growing media that's going to work. A very important thing to do is find a growing medium that's going to suit you. Test it out if you've got time by growing, say, cress seeds or something that's quick and cheap, and then make sure that you've got plenty of it. So I would be starting that particular investigation now. Which gardening guide is a very good thing to look at? I can't remember when it comes out. I think it's November where it comes out and it'll tell you which growing media are performing well this year in trials. And this is an absolute feature of peat-free growing medium, unfortunately. Inconsistency between, oh. between years. And this problem is going to get much more serious because there's a worldwide shortage. Certainly, as far as Britain's concerned, there's a, there's a UK shortage in peat-free alternatives. And so people are scrabbling about, companies are scrabbling about to get anything that they can get to chuck into these media so that they've got enough to sell. And some of it is dreadful. And the amateur market is where it gets dumped, unfortunately. So my advice would be test it by growing cress seeds or something cheap and quick, then buy your bulk, if you can. Third thing is make sure if you have not already implemented a crop rotation, do so. It's one of the easiest ways to prevent all sorts of problems including pest problems disease issues weed problems and nutritional problems and even on the tiniest scale my greenhouse is only i think 10 feet by six feet i've still got a four course crop rotation in it that's fantastic we'll leave the listeners now but hopefully they'll be taking time in the rainy days that we're having now to plan their rotations and their variety choices and buying their growing medium for the year ahead thank you so much for your time coming in today audrey really enjoyed picking your brains on all these questions (laughs) you're more than welcome